I want to begin reading from Acts chapter 4, and I think we should begin at verse 1. Familiar passage. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John and because it was evening they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed and the number of men grew to about 5,000. The next day the rulers, elders and teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas the high priest was there and so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander and the other men of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called account today for the act of kindness shown to a cripple and are asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. He is the stone the builders rejected, which has become the capstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. No other name. I want to talk to you about our authentic Savior. The persecution of Christians in the first century centered around two particular reasons. You see, there was really no problem as far as the Romans were concerned if the Christians had come along and said, hey, by the way, we found another God to add to the pantheon. His name is Jesus. And the Romans would have said, be our guest, add him on. We've got any number of gods and goddesses. You can add another one if you want. Add one or two if you wish. It's no problem. The problem is, the Christians didn't say that. The Christians said, there is no other name, and we're sure of it. It was the exclusivism of the early Christians that brought the wrath of the Romans upon them. But there was another reason. You see, the Jews had actually, the Romans had actually made a, a sort of exception for the Jews. The Jews were monotheists. And that didn't fit well with the Roman pantheon, but the Romans had said, well, just keep it quiet and that'll be all right. We'll overlook this. You can keep to your religion, you can worship your God, whoever he is, and it doesn't matter. And the Jews actually bought into that quite well because they were not particularly concerned to spread their message beyond the borders of Israel. And that fitted fine. But the Christians wouldn't do that either. The Christians said, everyone must worship him alone for there is no other name given under heaven by which we must be saved. So on the one hand the Christians drew the wrath of the Roman authorities because of their exclusivism and on the other hand they drew the wrath of the Roman authorities because of their evangelism. 
And those are the two reasons why the Christians of the first century were so bitterly persecuted. And 2,000 years later, nothing has changed. True Christianity will always clash with contemporary society on those two counts. Exclusivism and evangelism. You can sit very comfortably in your society if you keep your head down and you don't share the message and you're prepared to say, he's one among many. And the ridicule that biblical Christianity receives, receives today is nothing new. They received it then. And didn't our master receive the same? Listen, isn't this the carpenter's son? Nazareth? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Aren't we right in saying that you are a Samaritan and you are demon-possessed? It's by the prince of demons that he casts out demons. We know this man is a sinner. He deceived the people. This fellow is blaspheming. He's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. All that was said of who? Your saviour and mine. So we may well respond... It's enough for the student to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. Or in the words of Peter, if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable with God. Recently you will have noticed an increasing in the media of its opposition to biblical creation. Have you noticed that? It's increasing. It's enchantment with any foolish attack on the canon of scripture. That's another thing that is increasing. And it's dire predictions that the church is on its last legs and is in terminal decline. The church may be, but true Christianity never will be. And actually, I find all this very heartening, because there must be some cause for this upsurge in opposition. Maybe they're rattled by the reality of the faith of those who in increasing numbers are taking the Bible seriously, and taking the Bible seriously we must... Because we cannot have a reliable salvation wrapped up in an unreliable history. Do you know a very interesting statistic came out in the UK just recently? And they did a poll on what people believed about um, the beginning of things. And do you know less than 46%, it was 46%, less than 50% of the population believed in evolution. That was staggering, considering a very minority population believe in the true God. Less than half believed in evolution. And I found myself saying, wow, with all the exposure they have, and in our media, it is exclusive exposure to evolution. They can't do better than that. Give us equal playing field in ten years, we'll do much better than that. Interestingly, the National Geographical Channel, in its detailed program on the Gospel of Judas, which was published a couple of years ago, at least conceded most scholars believe that the four Gospels were written between 60 and 80 AD. Now that was pretty good going for the National Geographic magazine. Most scholars believe 
that the four Gospels were written between 60 and 80 AD. And then they added, this was long after the death of Christ. Well, I don't know how you do your sums, but I do know this, that in the scheme of historical writing, 60 years after 30 AD is very close. Maybe Peter's bold claim on the day of Pentecost is being watered down even by evangelicals today in our pluralistic society. There are evangelicals writing that perhaps it is possible for people to enter heaven without a knowledge of Jesus Christ. Do you believe that? But you know, it towers over the magnificent statement of the uniqueness of Christ that there is no other name. Once upon a time, back in the 19th century, German New Testament scholars declared that most of the stories about Jesus in the Bible were made up by the 3rd century church. And there are still a few of yesterday's people around and they grab the headlines from time to time. Dr. Richard Dawkins is one of them. Dr. Dr. Robert Funk, that's his problem, not mine, of the Jesus Seminar in America, claimed some few years back, I quote, New Testament scholars have established beyond any reasonable doubt that the Jesus of the early Christian documents is to some extent a figment of the Christian imagination. And he and his team got together and they went right through the Gospels and picked out all the words of Jesus and they came to the conclusion that only about 18% of the words attributed to Jesus really came from his lips. Time magazine, shortly after the publication of that, went through his work and came to the conclusion that according to Dr. Funk, uh, about all we know about Jesus is that he entered the temple once or twice, met a few Pharisees, and said a few things. And that's about all we know about Jesus. That's good news, folk. That's good news. The Da Vinci Code, with, uh, da Vinci Code, with its claim that the four Gospels are not the authentic story of Jesus, of course, is absolutely nothing new. It's old, tired theories dressed up in the garb of an exciting novel. We're expected now to believe that everything we've been taught for the last 1700 years is a lie. Once upon a time, the large Soviet encyclopedia actually said that Christ was, I quote, the mythical founder of Christianity, unquote. Nobody living in the real world believes that anymore. Although not too long ago I was on a radio program head to head with an atheist and there was a phone in that followed and I suddenly discovered to my shock horror surprise there were really so-called intelligent people including a professor who's written a book on the subject to try and say that Jesus never lived. That's the stuff of Holocaust denial. Let's lay our Bible aside just for one moment. I'm not allowed to do that normally at AIG, but it's the end, so I can get away with most things. Cornelius Tacitus was a Roman lawyer, consul, and historian who was just four years old at the time of the great fire of Rome in AD 94, uh, 64. Writing in his Annals of the Emperor from Augustus to Nero, he comments on the rumor that Nero himself started the fire. Historians are still debating that one. Tacitus himself clearly believed that Nero had started the fire, but then he didn't like Nero. And he wrote this. And so, to get rid of this rumor, Nero set up as the culprits and punished with the utmost refinement of cruelty a class hated for their abominations who are commonly called Christians. Christus, from whom their name is derived, 
arrived was executed at the hands of the procurator Pontius Pilate in the reign of Tiberius. That was a Roman historian. I don't think, if my memory serves me correct, that he had too much of an evangelical bias. Suetonius says much the same thing. Josephus, the Jewish historian, and this is interesting, he wrote his Antiquities of the Jews in AD 93. That was before the Apostle John had died. He considered Jesus, I quote from Josephus, a wise man, if it be lawful to call him a man. He was a doer of wonderful works. He was the Christ. Josephus wrote of his death under Pilate, his resurrection, and the fact that, quote, the tribe of Christians so named from him are not extinct at this day. Now, such a clear statement, and some of you are ahead of me here, and you're all saying, ah, I know the answer to that one. So you see, such a clear statement have left some to argue that those words that I've just quoted must be later Christian interpolations into the works of Josephus. The problem is... There is no evidence for that assumption. Dr. James Parks, a Jew, in his book, The Conflict of the Church and the Synagogue, admits that these passages exist in the earliest existing manuscripts of Josephus, 4th century. You see, a priori assumptions are not restricted to old age scientists either. Because we don't like the conclusion there must be Christian interpolation somewhere. We, we've no evidence, but there must be, mustn't there? Not one single copy of Josephus is without them, but they must have been put in at some point, mustn't they? Because Josephus could never have said that. And so we could go on. After all, even the Jewish Talmud, a collection of biblical discussions and sayings of the rabbis of the 4th century AD, never doubt Jesus' existence. Of course, they have a very different interpretation of the events and who he was, but they don't doubt that he was. So all of this demonstrates beyond doubt that Jesus lived as a real figure of history. But we can't stop there. We've got to go much further than that if our claim it to it for an authentic saviour is to be real. I want to tell you about the Jesus of reality. You see, to believe in the Jesus of history, you actually don't need your Bible. To understand the Jesus of history, you can't do without your Bible. Take our man Peter, for example. Some pe clever people tell us that much in our Bible is myth. Oh no, you don't need to be worried about that. A myth is a made-up story that is not historically true, but it illustrates religious truths. So it's very important. Myths are very important. They tell us... These stories are myths. Unfortunately, Peter was ahead of them in the game by about 2,000 years. And in 2 Peter 1 and verse 16, he deliberately says, We did not follow cleverly invented stories. And you may remember the word he uses in the Greek is myths, muthos. We didn't follow cleverly invented muthos, myths, when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Or take Paul's great chapter on the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 3. What I received I passed on to you as of first importance, <clears throat> that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Notice that, according to the scriptures. Why do we believe that Jesus died and rose? Because God said so. Or consider Luke's Gospel. He begins by telling us that it was carefully investigated. 
And an orderly account doesn't necessarily mean in chronological order, it just means there's a meaningful order in the account. So that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught, Luke 1, 3 to 4. Or take John, uh, John himself, three years with Christ, he closes his record of the life and teaching of Christ. This is the disciple, he says, who testifies to these things and wrote them down. We know that his testimony is true, John 21. And years later he opens the first of his three letters. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. We've seen it, we've handled it, we've been there, we watched him. He couldn't be clearer. And all these books and letters were circulating among the churches well before the close of the first century AD. And don't let anyone tell you anything other than that. Now just before we move on, I want to pause a moment and focus on the Gospels as an authentic history. By that I mean that they bear all the hallmarks of an authentic eyewitness. They record details that would be unknown in ancient literature, certainly the literature of the first century. Let me give you an example. John 8, verse 6, the woman taken in adultery. Do you remember at one point in the story, we read these rather strange words. Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. Do you know what he wrote? You haven't a clue. Now, supposing you were John, who after all was watching it because he gave us the record, what would you do? Here are the crowd of men standing around and Jesus just quietly bends down and he scribbles on the ground in his with his finger and you're watching and then you know the story one by one the men go out and there's only Jesus and the woman left and then eventually he dismisses the, G the woman and then he moves off. Now you're John, what would you do? Well I know what I would do. I'd be the first up front there. I want to know what he's written. Aren't you sure that's what John did? Unfortunately when John got there it had all been scuffed over. He never knew what Jesus wrote. But all he says is, well he bent down and wrote something. Now C.S. Lewis, one of our greatest literary critics, reminds his readers that he had spent his life reading ancient literature. And he said, never would an apparently meaningless bit of information like that be recorded unless it really happened. It struck John as odd so he wrote it down. That's a mark of an authentic eyewitness account. Let me give you something else. Do you remember the way that Philip introduced Jesus to Nathanael in John 1.44? We found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the, the prophets also wrote. Jesus of Nazareth, son of Joseph. Hey, hold on a moment. Two years later they would never have written that. The early church, if it was writing these 100 to 150 years later, would never have written that. Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph, everybody knows better than that. Jesus of Nazareth. There is nothing in the Old Testament about Nazareth. There is no messianic expectation that the Messiah would come from Nazareth. Why invent Nazareth? Bethlehem, yes. All right, you say, well, because he grew up in Nazareth. Yeah, sure, but he was born where? Well, now that made sense. We have found Jesus from Bethlehem. Oh, David's city. That's where we were expecting the Messiah to come from. 
But Nathanael didn't understand all this, so he said, Nazareth. And also he said, son of Joseph. Now at this point, Philip really believed that Jesus was the son of Joseph. How could he expect to be know any more? But later he would never have said it. Even in Luke 3 and verse 23, we are told he was the son, so it was thought of Joseph. By the way, the argument of the Da Vinci Code is that the church wrote the four Gospels, or put them all together in the 4th century, 4th century, about 325, uh, to make out that Christ was God. Well, here was a bit of a slip, wasn't it? Because they're calling him the son of Joseph. Well, they missed that one. You see, it isn't old earth scientists who make all the big mistakes either. There's a mistake. These are marks of authentic narratives, and again and again you'll find them in the Gospels. Watch for them. I'm collecting them. One day I might write a book about the authentic Bible, because from beginning to end you have the mark of a book that is unique. It's uh, wonderful to see how the claims of Jesus are so magnificently misunderstood. You remember that uh, here is Jesus and he's, he's doing so many marvelous things. I want to remind you that he was the Jesus of prophecy. Not just the Jesus of history and the Jesus of reality, but the Jesus of prophecy. Remember how Jesus, uh, Paul said that he was raised according to the scriptures? Now one of the great embarrassments for those who try to downgrade Christ and the Gospels is this problem of prophecy. The Gospels is a prophetic book. His birthplace in Bethlehem, Micah 5 verse 2. Now nobody disputes that Micah 5 verse 2 was written down many years. Even the most liberal, liberal critic believes that Micah was written down maybe 100, 150 years before Jesus was born. That is the most extreme critic you can possibly imagine. Nobody believes that it was written down afterwards. Micah 5 and verse 2 is all there of a piece with Micah's gospel, Micah's prophecy. His birthplace in Jerusalem is foretold. Take the miraculous conception in the womb of the, Ma of the Virgin Mary. Uh, Isaiah 7 verse 14. 700 years before Christ. Riding into town on the back of a donkey, remember? Zechariah 9 and verse 9. Of course he did that deliberately to fulfill the promise. He knew what Zechariah 9 and verse 9 was about. And the Jews were so absolutely certain that if you, uh, that the, their Messiah when he came would come associated with a donkey and would come riding on a donkey, they were so sure about this that many Jews believed that if you went to bed at night and dreamt about a donkey, as one does, then you would live to see the coming of the Messiah. Jesus knew that. That's why he sat, got on the back of a donkey and rode into town. The betrayal by a close friend, Psalm 41. It's all there. All clearly there in the Old Testament prophecies between 900 and 700 BC. No one doubts that Micah, Isaiah, Zechariah were written long before Christ was born. But just for a moment I want to focus. Have you got your Bible? If you want you could turn to Psalm 22. Magnificent Psalm. Psalm of David from about, well, when, David, when was David around? 900 BC. Here he is in Psalm 22. You know how it starts, don't you? Those awesome, awful verses. 
My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from the words of my groaning? Maybe Christ cried that out on the cross just to fit in with the Psalm David, because everybody would have known Psalm 22 and known that what he'd said was fitting in. All right. But he didn't have much control over 7 and 8, did he? All who see me mock me, they hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let it, lo the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. And if you turn to your gospel, Matthew 27, 41 through 43, you'll find exactly those words the people were using. And look at verses 15 and 16 in Psalm 22. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men have encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I count all my bones. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among, me, among them and cast lots for my clothing. Now that could have been a pretty good guesswork because that was the common thing of the soldiers to do that. They didn't always have to cast lots. They did in this case for a particular reason. I think sometimes David, when he was writing Psalm 22, must have stopped for a moment and said, Lord, why am I writing this? Because it was well beyond his own experience. Why am I writing this? And the Lord would have said to him, David, you don't understand now, but one day you will. One day you will. The Jesus of prophecy... You see, there's a problem to explain something like Psalm 22, Isaiah 53, away. Were the prophets all liars and deceivers, or were they eyewitnesses? History, reality, prophecy. Let me tell you about the Jesus of authority. I want you to listen to Christ and watch him and the reaction of the crowds to him during his life. The common people, as you know, heard him gladly and said he preached like no one else. Well, maybe he was just very gifted. He was a marvelous orator, perhaps. But look at some of his claims. John 5, verse 18. He referred to God as his father. Well, you say, not such a big deal in that either. We can all do that. Ah, yes, but you've got to understand what was going on at the time. You see, the Jews had no concept of God as a personal father, like you as a Christian understand today. They had a concept of God as the father of the nation. They had a concept of God as the father even of their king. But they didn't consider God particularly as their personal individual father. They wouldn't take that enormous claim upon themselves. So when he said that God was his father, the Jews knew what he was saying. And we read in John 5.18, for this reason the Jews tried all the harder to kill him. He was even making, calling God his father, making himself equal with God. They understood that. They knew what it meant. Later in John 8 and verse 58, Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. Now you know about that, don't you? This was Jesus taking upon himself the title that was revealed to Moses. Moses said, uh, who shall I tell the people you are when I go back to them? And God said, I am that I am. And Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. Now they weren't angry with him for being so, so stupid, so dumb as to assume that he was before Abraham. They were 
they were angry because he was taking upon himself the divine name. They knew what he was doing. At this, we are told in the very next verse in John's Gospel, they picked up stones to stone him. Or take his claim to forgive sins. You've probably never thought of it like this. Mark 2, if you like, or Luke 5, whichever one you want. This guy's just dropped down through the roof. They did that kind of thing. And uh, he, Jesus has said to him, Friend, your sins are forgiven. Friend, your sins are forgiven. And the response was, Who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now notice, he was not forgiving specific sins because this man had robbed him or gossiped about him. The poor guy, as I said, only just dropped down through the roof. I want you to listen to C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity in his comment on this. It's masterful. Now, says Lewis, unless the speaker is God, this is really so preposterous as to be comic. We can all understand how a man forgives offences against himself. You tread on my toes, I forgive you. You steal my money and I forgive you. But what do we make of a man, himself unrobbed and untrodden on, who announces that he forgave you for treading on other men's toes and stealing other men's money? Lewis says, asinine fatuity. That means being interpreted donkey-like stupidity. But that he was a doctor of literature. Asinine fatuity is the kindest description we can give of this conduct. Yet this is what Jesus did, says Lewis. He told people that their sins were forgiven and he never waited to consult all the other people whom their sins had undoubtedly injured. He unhesitatingly behaved as if he was the party chiefly concerned, the person chiefly offended in all the offenses. This makes sense only if he really was. The God whose laws are broken and whose love is wounded in every sin. In the mouth of any other speaker who is not God, these words would imply what I can only regard as a silliness and conceit unrivaled by any character in history. Isn't that good? Isn't that right? You have a choice. Either when Jesus said your sins are forgiven, that was asinine fatuity, or whatever it was, or you say he is God the one who is sinned against. Let me give you another example of asinine fatuity. John 8:45. Can anyone prove me guilty of sin? Stand up, the man or woman, fellow or girl or child, who could dare to say right here in the midst of us all, I am not guilty of any sin. You're just about to sit down, I don't blame you. Yeah. That is the most ridiculous challenge any man could have made. Remember where he is. He's in front of the very people who are looking for an opportunity to, to, to put him down. The, he's in front of the very people who are trying to dismiss him. Surrounded by his critics. Desperate to prove him blasphemous. And he says, can anyone prove me guilty of sin? You go for a job interview. You sit down and they ask you why you'll fit in with this company. Try it if you apply for a job with AIG and see what happens. Well, first of all, you need to understand, most important thing, I have never done anything wrong in my life and I never will. Do you think you'll get the job? Surely Christ is finished. A claim too far. Very easy to check it out. You've only got to go down to Nazareth with your clipboard and your tape recorder, knock on a few doors. Do you know where... The carpenter lived? Oh yeah, just up there. He's gone now, but yeah, yeah, okay, I know, but 
knock on a few doors down the high street in Nazareth. Ask about this child Jesus, the son of Mary. What was he like as a kid? Did you ever see him in the street on his back, kicking his legs in the air, throwing a tantrum? Well, actually, no, no, you can't admit, we never did. What was he like in the classroom? D did he, when the teacher's back was turned to flick? No, no. What was he like with the girls? You know there was something about this young child as he grew up into teenage years, through into manhood. He was remarkably different. And then 30 years later he stands in front of his critics and says, Who can convince me of sin? And 2,000 years later, only the grubby minds of cheap novelists and dirty filmmakers can do anything about it. There's nothing in history. This man is unique. Perfect. One of the most beautiful testimonials were ever given to Jesus comes in Luke chapter 15 and verse 2. And it comes from the teeth of the men who hate him. Do you know what they said? This man welcomes sinners. No, they didn't say it like that. They said, this man welcomes sinners. That was the biggest put down they could ever give. It is the most beautiful testimonial to Jesus. If that was not true, you wouldn't be here and neither would I. This man welcomes sinners. The Jesus of history, the Jesus of reality, the Jesus of prophecy, the Jesus of authority. Can I tell you about the Jesus of Calvary? Or oh, we'll bypass Gethsemane and the betrayal by Judas. We'll overlook the mockery of a trial by the Sanhedrin, then by Pilate, then by Herod, then back to Pilate. We won't linger on the route to the cross. We'll see him there at his terrible final destination. You know what it was like, you've seen it. Listen in to his prayer for the Roman soldiers. It was for the Roman soldiers he prayed. Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. His concern for his mother and John beneath the cross. Woman, this is your son. John, this is your mother. His welcome for the dying criminal next to him. Those beautiful words, today you'll be with me in paradise. Pilate five or six times had said, I find no fault in him. The dying thief said, this man has done nothing wrong. The centurion admitted, surely this was a righteous man. This was the Son of God. And he knew what he was saying. Even the mocking crowds, we are told, fell silent and beat their breasts. And listen to his Father in heaven as Jesus Christ hung on the cross. The Father with whom he created the earth and the universe, by whom the whole world and worlds beyond came into being, and who loved him and at the very beginning of his ministry testified, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Listen to the Father now that his dear Son is hanging, shattered, broken on the cross. Listen to what the Father says. Can you hear anything? I hear nothing. Why is heaven so silent when even his tormentors seem to know who he is? Doesn't heaven care? Where are the angels, he said, could come and rescue him? Oh no. It's because the Father does care. He cares for you and me so much that he left his son, his only son, to die. 
Peter says he bore our sin in his body on the tree. Paul says he who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. John says this is love, not that we love God, but that God loved us and gave his son. Look how he gave his son. And in that awesome, awful moment of the blackness of the cross, when Christ cried, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? For the first and the only time in all eternity, there was a divorce between God the Father and God the Son. When the Father laid all your sin and guilt and punishment upon the Son, he turned his back to his Son so that he may feel all that I deserved. Now I have to tell you, there are many evangelicals who do not believe this anymore. Don't let go of it. It's called the propitiatory penal sacrifice of death of Christ. Big words. It just means, that word propitiation means that he turned the anger of God away, the just anger of God away, by taking our guilt and our punishment upon himself so that we could go free. That's the Jesus of Calvary.